Beloved, I ask you to open your Bible back to the gospel, of course, uh, the gospel according to Luke. Uh, this morning we're back in Luke 14. We're going to start in verse 25 and go, God willing, to the end of the chapter today as we continue to follow Jesus on the road to the cross. Uh, but let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer before we do that. Father, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to gather around your word. We have been singing, we've been thanking you for our country, we have been giving, we've been fellowshipping to glorify you, but now we need to hear from you. And that won't come by some sign, that's not going to come by an inner voice, that's not going to come from doing our own thing, it's not going to come by going by our gut, it's going to come through the reading, the study, and the obedience to your word, because We are all sinners and we've all fallen short of your glory and only by your grace and mercy can we be saved. So I pray you might cause us to hear this morning. Hear not just with our physical ears but with our hearts so that we might believe the word of God and obey it. For our salvation and for your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in days, beloved, that you, know, you watch the news, if you turn the news on, if you read your paper, if you go to some news site on the web, it is to embark on an adventure in the incomprehensible. Because more and more it's hard to believe what we see and hear going on around us. Marriage is being redefined by judicial edict. Gender identities are multiplying like rabbits. The two major party candidates have the highest unfavorable ratings in history. And the greatest offense in the world seems to be when you offend somebody. The greater culture, more and more it seems, is becoming one big safe zone, like those we hear about on college campuses, where people are increasingly not wanting to have their assumptions challenged, not wanting to have their beliefs and opinions challenged. It's the safety from being offended. And I wish I could say it's not like that among Christians and churches, but it doesn't take long to realize that it is exactly like that also in Christians and churches. When some church somewhere seems to be drawing a crowd and making an impact on the community and being the the end thing in the community, but someone dares point out that Maybe what they're teaching isn't actually what the Bible says. Well then, that's divisive. That's being a hater. That's being a disruptive influence. You lack love when you point that out. And it's not because that's true, but it's because people don't want their assumptions challenged on what it means to be a Christian. Maybe that's you today too. You don't want your assumptions challenged on what it means to be faithful to Jesus Christ. So you're not supposed to proclaim a message that's too controversial. You're not supposed to be confrontational. You're not supposed to preach a a message that can be perceived as judgmental. You talk less about sin and and more about you know living with victory today, eternal destiny, the sweet by and by. And sometimes you even lay off asserting belief that truth is exclusive. That there aren't versions of the truth, but there's the truth and then everything else. And that the truth is not open for debate. You get in trouble when you suggest that. 
When we consider, though, what we have been reading in Luke, what Jesus has said in Luke, how much in common do His words really have with the kind of religion that's being lived out and proclaimed in the world today? Because in too many cases, people who profess Christ, churches seem more concerned with getting people through the doors or preventing people from walking out of the doors than they are the purpose of the church. And it gets lost. So the message becomes malleable. It becomes palatable. It becomes pliable so that it might fit whatever you want it to fit. Whatever makes people happy, that seems to be what's right. Much has been made of late about gender self-identification But for far longer, following Jesus has been often a matter of simply self-identifying as a Christian without any real reference to what he teaches. The things that we have been seeing week after week after week. We started this study in Luke over three years ago now. And we've been seeing it week after week after week. And in our text, beloved, this morning, Jesus leaves no doubt whatsoever about what it means to not just identify as a Christian, but actually be one. And so I hope that you will have your assumptions challenged as to what Jesus demands of you right now. Verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore salt is good. But even if, if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. A more difficult passage you won't find. Large crowds were going along with Jesus. Just months from the cross, Jesus is still drawing large crowds. You've got the twelve apostles who are with him. Judas is following. He's going to betray Jesus eventually, but he's with them. You've got some more who are devout followers of Jesus who believe what he's saying. They're relatively few in number, but they're there. You've got even more who are curious about Jesus. What is this man going to say and do next? What is this teacher and this miracle worker going to say and do next? And beyond that even, you've got 
religious leaders. You've got the religious establishment and those who are opposed to him. People like the Pharisees who, as we've seen several times in Luke and earlier even in this chapter, they follow Jesus around. Why? So they can listen to him, so they can accuse him, so they can trap him, so that they can charge him and ultimately destroy him. So Jesus has a crowd with him and he turns to them and begins speaking to him. And this is where the first thing I want you to see begins. If you want to be Jesus' disciple, you can't love your own family more than you love Jesus. If you want to be Jesus' disciple, you can't love your own family more than you love Jesus. As I was putting the finishing touches on this last night, this was very acute in my heart. Because yesterday... I had the pleasure of renewing my vows to my wife, who I love more than my own life itself. I've got to love Jesus a lot more than I love her. I've got to love Jesus more than I love my own children. Not every family is a happy family. Not every family is a close family. I praise God for happy, close families. But not every family is like that. Not every family is close. But beloved, there is within all of us, I believe, an inclination. And sometimes we resist this inclination. But there is in all of us an inclination, a natural attachment to family. And I believe this is because we are made in the image of God. And God is the Father. And He loves His Son. And He loves those whom He adopts into His fold, into His family as sons and daughters. He loves them with an everlasting love. And so, yes, we are made in the image of God, and so there is in all of us, I believe, a natural attachment, an instinct for family. Jesus brings this up because He knows what is true of the large crowd around Him because it's also what's true of us today. And it's that being a Christian will oftentimes bring conflict into your home. Being a Christian will often bring conflict into your home. Rather, it's an unbelieving husband with a believing wife. Rather, it's believing children and unbelieving parents. Maybe it's a family that begins to get upset because one or more of the people in the family are suddenly getting a little too serious, a little too committed to their faith. And it's making things difficult with the lifestyle of the family. That happens so often. It brings change. Beloved, following Jesus brings conflict. He said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and so on. He said that. The Lord who we trust in said that. And so you read this and you might wonder, why is Jesus telling me to hate my wife? Why is Jesus telling me to hate my father, hate my mother? Why is Jesus saying this? Well, I hope you understand He's not actually telling you to hate them. At least not in the way we think of hate, because to hate your family is not contrary to all of the commands we have to love. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. Wives are to be taught to love their husbands. Children are to love their parents. Fathers and mothers are to love their children, and so on. It's not contrary to say what Jesus has just said, and honor your father and mother. It doesn't negate all of that. But, and that's because of this. Hate in this context is referring to something that expresses preference. What I mean by that is, 
It's a Jewish way of illustrating you prefer one to another. And I told you earlier when we were reading through Romans 9, I, I mentioned a verse, Romans 9.13, which is quoted by Paul. It's Malachi 1.3 that he quotes, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. But does that mean that God bore animosity toward Esau before he was born? The answer to that is no. The answer to that is no. The passage, that passage, is about God's sovereign choice. He made promises to Abraham. He made promises to Isaac. And so he chose, out of those two twins that came from Isaac and Rebekah, he chose Jacob to be the one who the, the, the covenant promise was going to go forth from. So in that manner, he loved Jacob specially. And Esau, in that matter, was not preferred. He preferred Jacob to Esau. Jacob also. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. He would later have two more who Leah and Rachel would give him. But the, the word Leah, he, he, he loved Rachel. Leah was unloved. But the word there in Genesis 29-31 for unloved is the Hebrew word for hate. But did, did Jacob despise Leah? Did Jacob detest Leah? Did J- Jacob bear animosity toward Leah? No, he didn't. That word is used to show how much he preferred, how much he, he loved Rachel specially. To hate your family then, what Jesus is saying to us this morning is that when it comes to a choice between being obedient to Jesus Christ and making your family happy, When it comes to a choice between being obedient to Jesus Christ or having your spouse go to bed in the same bed mad at you, you choose Jesus Christ. When what your family desires comes in conflict with what God desires, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength, if you want to be Jesus' disciple, He says you got to say no to your family no matter what it is, and you've got to say yes to the Word of God. Beloved, as a pastor, I've been a pastor here for a little over three years. I've been a pastor other places for going on over ten years. And I've had several times where I've had to deal with different conflicts. Sometimes they've been family conflicts. And one of the things I have sometimes heard is that in conflict, I'm gonna, my family's always going to come first, even if the family might be wrong. But that is not being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In conflicts, as in all things, Jesus must come first. In anything else you do, that is self-serving. You're serving yourself. You are your own God. And Jesus says to the one with that mindset, you cannot be my disciple. Children, Jesus says to obey your parents, but if your parents tell you to sin, you obey Jesus. Wives are told to submit to your husbands, but if your husband tells you to sin, you obey Jesus. We're told to submit to our governing authorities, but if our governing authorities tell us to sin, there's a time when civil disobedience is the right thing to do. We love Jesus. You can't love your family more than you love Jesus. Your purpose in life is not to make your family happy. 
It's not. Your purpose is to love them by first loving the Lord. And when you love the Lord, you'll always do what's best for them. Because love doesn't do what makes someone happy. Love does what is best for somebody. And following Jesus is always what is best, even if it hurts. It might not make them happy, but it's what's best. Like Jesus does for you, by the way. It has to be Jesus or nothing. When choosing to follow Jesus or stay on good terms with your family, you have to choose Jesus. You can't love your own family more than you love Jesus. You also can't love your own life more than you love Jesus. Look, you can't love your own life. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Beloved, when Jesus says, follow me, that's not so you can live your best life now. That's not so that you can become a better you, so that you can be all you can be. Jesus did not die on the cross for that. On the contrary, He died telling you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me. Deny yourself. Consider all of your earthly relationships. Consider all of your earthly pursuits. All of your earthly riches so trivial compared to the glory of the kingdom of God that you are willing to abandon yourself. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20 when he writes, For I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. So do not cling to your earthly life at the expense of everlasting life. Do you do that? Do you cling to earthly happiness at the expense of following Christ? If ISIS were to put the sword to your throat today and say convert to Islam or die, would you comply with them or would you comply with Christ? Would you... Save your physical life or would you be content with being decapitated in the flesh only to instantaneously appear in the glory of God? Or if the government decided to drag you to jail if you don't go along with some law compromising scripture, if you don't go along with the new cultural orthodoxy, sexual immorality and things like that, what will you say? What would you say today? That might be easier to answer in a church sanctuary than it is out there. And if you think the imagery I'm using is a little too graphic, it's only because I want you to know what the stakes are this morning. Our discipleship to Jesus Christ is actually being challenged in a billion lesser ways. And we end up compromising our faith in Christ in a billion lesser ways than that. Rather, you love your life more than Jesus is challenged in so many ways, beloved. But Jesus says you can't love your own life more than you love Him. And think about this. He said this knowing He was going to the cross. He said this knowing He was going to Jerusalem to give His life for His people. And if you are His people today, it means you have to be ready to give your life for Him. You have to count the cost, beloved. Like the man building a tower. He calculates the cost to see if he has enough. And if he lays a foundation and doesn't build on it, it's a ridiculous waste. 
But that's how so many who wear the label of Christians are living their lives, as a ridiculous waste. That profession of faith is all there is. Church membership is all there is. Going week in and week out, giving, serving on committees is all there is. That's just the foundation. There's nothing really built upon that. There's no. You spend plenty of your life investing in religious miscellany, building a supposedly sanctified resume, but there's no true investment of your life into the actual mission. The actual loving Christ more than your family. The actual loving Christ more than yourself. To put yourself on the line to love others. To confront sin in others. To proclaim the gospel to others. And if that's you, beloved, if your faith in Jesus runs as deep as this surface level stuff, if you're building on that foundation, or rather not building on it, what a waste. And you run the risk, I'll tell you this, we've seen this already, you run the risk of one day standing before the throne and Jesus saying to you, depart from me, I never knew you. You're the king who's going with 10,000 into battle and you're going to lose because you haven't prepared to face the more powerful king. You haven't made terms of peace. Beloved, let me share with you some words spoken by one of the pastors out there who's had the greatest impact on my life and ministry. It's a man named Steve Lawson. It's words that deal with this same text. Words that I need to hear. Words that you need to hear. And you need to respond to to this today. It can't wait. And it's this. You. Not the person next to you, but you. You need to weigh the cost factor and count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It will cost you popularity. It will cost you earthly happiness at times. It will cost you near and dear friendships and relationships. It will cost you an easy life. You will have to discipline yourself. You will have to buffet your body. You will have to say no to temptation. You will have to say no to this world. You will have to break with the crowd. You will have to be willing to stand alone in this world. You will have to be willing to walk to the beat of a different drummer and to step out in the crowd even if you're the only one following Christ. You have to be willing to stand even if you're the only person in the world standing for Jesus Christ. That's the cost factor. You have to be willing to suffer persecution for Christ. And let me tell you, it will come. Persecution comes small, medium, and large. And if you follow Christ intently, closely, enduringly, it will come. It might even cost you your own life. Beloved, Jesus did not come to play games. He's not coming again to be docile. Read your Bible, beloved. He is coming to dominate and He is coming to slaughter. Jesus is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. And at the end of this age, He's going to bolt out of heaven on a white steed and His garments are going to be dripped in blood, the blood of His own enemies. He is coming back to conquer and He is coming back to damn. And you need to make terms of peace with this coming King, or you will be subjected to damnation forever. And Jesus Christ has made terms of peace. 
You need to settle out of court with Him. You don't want to go into the final day of conflict with Christ because He's going to be ruthless in the execution of His justice. But He offers you mercy today. He will agree to terms of surrender and He will agree to terms of peace, but they are His terms of surrender. They are His terms of peace, not ours. And His terms of peace are very simply this. You must hate your father and mother and brother and sister and even your own life more than me or you cannot be my disciple. And you must take up your cross and follow me or you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not, you will meet me in the final judgment. And just as we read in Romans 9, it will glorify God in vessels of wrath prepared for destruction If you meet Him in the final judgment and have not made terms of peace, it will glorify God in your destruction. So He is pressing you for a decision. And He will not be put off. You cannot hit the mute button in your heart any longer. You have to answer to Him. So verse 33, So then, conclusion, none of you can be my disciple. He's saying, None of you can be a true Christian. None of you can be in my kingdom. None of you can be in right relationship with me or my Father. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. What is our Lord saying? He's not backing off. He's increasing the level of commitment He's calling for with every line of this passage. He's he's not saying that you can buy your way into the kingdom of heaven because none of us have enough gold. None of us have enough silver to do that. None of us have enough to remove the stain of sin from our own souls. So what is He saying? Who does not give up all of His own possessions? Does He want us to be communist? Does He want us to be socialistic? No, if we take this in context with other texts of Scripture, this is what it means. This is the bottom line of the bottom line. You must transfer the ownership of all that you are and all that you have to all that He is. You must transfer the ownership of all that you are and all that you have to all that He is. Does this sound like your life today, beloved? Because that's what He's saying here. Your life is no longer your life, it is His life. Your time is no longer your time, it is His time. Your possessions are no longer your possessions, they are His possessions. Your future is no longer your future, it is His future. Your treasure is no longer your treasure, it is His treasure. And you have transferred all that you are and all that you have to all that He is. That's what it means to meet His terms of peace. Yet the exchange is not bartered or bought with real money. It is purchased with the total, complete surrender of your life to Jesus Christ. That's what saving faith is. It is coming to an end of yourself and completely and helplessly, entirely trusting all that you are and all that you have to all that He is. This is is your eternal soul at stake. This is the only life you'll ever live. 
This deals with the only eternity you'll ever have. And so he says, salt is good, but even if even salt has become tasteless, meaning it gives evidence it was never true salt to begin with, with what will it be seasoned? And the answer is nothing. Verse 35, it is useless even for the soil or the manure pile. It is no good to anyone. Not to God, not to Christ, not to the kingdom, not to the church. You're just taking up a seat. It is useless either for the soil. You're not even worth the toilet, spiritually speaking. Because you've not come to a place, the place, of total surrender of your life and supreme allegiance and supreme loyalty to Christ. You've not come yet under the lordship of Christ and taken up your cross to follow Him. And then he says, Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You need to give strictest attention to what God has said in His Son. Because God has spoken in His Son to us right here today, right here in this church building, right here through His Word. God has brought each of you here today, and it is not by accident, it is not by happenstance, it is the goodness of God and it is the mercy of God that you are here and He has brought you to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ who upon the cross became sin for us. Upon that cross He died to self that He might live for us and that He might bear our sins and iniquities upon that tree that He might purchase our salvation. And there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other way, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. John 14, 6. No man can come to the Father except through me. And so He's calling out to you today. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will take you in and I will receive you unto myself. I take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And it is, because you will have the weight of sin lifted off of you, and you will now have the yoke of Christ on you, and He gets into that yoke with you, and He pulls with you, and He will give that to you. He does this for you, but it will require the total commitment of your life to Him. Oh, how we need to search our hearts today. Have I come to this place of total commitment in my life? Have I yielded my life to the sovereign lordship of the one who died upon the cross? The gates of paradise, beloved, have been swung open to us. The narrow door, the narrow gate is open if you will obey His call. If you will come to Him in surrendering faith, if you will come through the narrow gate and commit your life to Him despite the strength of His words, because He also says, He who comes to Me, I will in no way cast out. He's calling you today to come. To come to Him. To believe in Him. To come to Him. But if you come to Him, don't play games. 
Too many have walked this aisle. Too many have been baptized here and in churches all over the land. But they were playing games. Don't play games. It cost Jesus his life that this opportunity might be given to you. The reward is exceedingly abundantly more than you can ask or imagine, but it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. You must surrender today to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask right now that you might break resisting hearts. That those hearts might surrender their lives to you and receive the gift of salvation, to receive the gift of everlasting life in your kingdom. I pray, Father, that sinners today might recognize they are sinners today and come to the one, your Son, who became sin for us on the cross, that they might be forgiven and saved. I pray for any here who might not believe, and also also for those who have made in the past a profession of faith, And maybe they've been baptized. Maybe they've gone to church for decades. But when they measure their lives against what your son says, they can't in good conscience say it's real. I pray they'll be broken and come to you that you might save them. I pray they'll come to you and make their coming to you public today. And as for those of us, Father, who have surrendered to you, who have come to you in obedient faith, who have counted the cost. Father, in this church, in our lives, we need a renewed vision of what it means to be your son's disciple. We need to recognize, Father, our comfort must be sacrificed for the glory of the one who is our sacrifice. We need to be willing to be ridiculed and lose relationships, lose anything and everything, including our lives, if it means we're giving honor to Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to understand that in a way we never have before. That that while it might cost us everything to be Jesus' disciple, the reward so exceeds the cost that it's ludicrous we would ever resist your Son's commands. Help us to see, Father the absurdity and the futility of superficial Christianity. Superficial discipleship. And cause us to truly come after Jesus. To truly follow Him. And as the Word says, may he or she who has ears to hear, hear. And may you receive all of the glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.